You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Matthew chapter 6. Last week, we took a look at what it means to honor and worship God throughout the week. I hope that last week as you were uh, living life, that you took the opportunity to look around you, maybe the blue sky, maybe those cool temperatures we've had the last few mornings uh, just made you turn your eyes and your heart towards God and just say thank you. In the Lord's Prayer, if you remember, the disciples came to Jesus because they'd not heard anybody pray just like Jesus. And last week we talked about what it means to hallow or exalt his name. And today we want to look at the next statement of this model prayer. And of course, we're going to go over and take a look at the psalm. We honored God last week and exalted his name, and we tried to learn about what it means to look at creation and all that God has, has made all around us, just as David did, and then give him praise and worship and honor for that. But look at Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus teaching the disciples to pray says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, is in, as it is in heaven. That second phrase of this model prayer is one of the most dangerous prayers you can pray as a follower of Jesus. Because it's in that statement that Jesus instructs his disciples, not just the 12 that are with him, but all disciples, to consider the fact that God has a will, a purpose, a sovereign plan. And that that sovereign plan is being worked out perfectly right now in heaven. The universe is being controlled and run by God just as he sees fit. The challenge becomes is when your life, where you're living, day in and day out, releasing our will, our purpose, our decisions to the sovereignty and the power of God. So, so this is a very dangerous prayer. And I'm convinced that the only way you can pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the only way you can pray that prayer is if you're worshiping God and honoring him. I think the way Jesus laid this out is exactly the model we ought to be following. Does that mean that we quote this prayer as it's written over and over again? Well, there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't think that's the intention of what Jesus was teaching. What Jesus was teaching is that our prayer time, if we follow this model, our prayer time should certainly be focused on worshiping and honoring God, exalting his name, hallowing his name. But the next obvious step from hallowing his name is now what are we going to do by living out that conviction that God is in control, that God's name is worthy to be exalted? What does that mean for your life where you live today? I'm convinced until we understand his beauty, his majesty, his power, and who we are as a result of that, we're not ready to pray that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The disciples, Jesus teaches them this model prayer, and I, I have to wonder if they didn't immediately start praying through this model prayer as they're following Jesus. So in other words, as they're following Jesus over the next three years of Jesus' life, 
There will be times maybe when they're together corporately or individually that they are praying along the same lines, Lord God, have your will. That was not a foreign concept to these Jewish men at all. But what was foreign to them is that where they live and what they're doing day in and day out, are they surrendering their will to the will of the Father? What blew my mind about this is that if they're praying that prayer as they're following Jesus, guess what they're praying for? They're praying that if God's will be done, they're praying that for their life, but they're also praying that in relation to Jesus. So when Jesus begins to reveal what his will is, they don't like it. So for example, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, now guys, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect three days later. Peter being the first to step up says, oh, we're not having any part of that. And the more they would follow Jesus, the more Jesus seems to be completely focused on going to Jerusalem and dying. In John 14, he says, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. He says that if I don't go away, then the comforter can't come. Over and over again, Jesus keeps saying that he's got to go away. Well, guess what? That's exactly what the disciples were praying for. They just didn't know it. They didn't know that, that this will on earth was Jesus dying on a cross, a criminal's death at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. You see, in their mind, God's will must have certainly been that Jesus will go into Jerusalem, he will overthrow the Romans, he will kick them out, they will be able to unify the city, unify the nation of Israel, bring those who've been dispersed back home. Jesus sits on the throne. They'll be able to serve as, well, almost like kings alongside Jesus over the maybe the provinces of Israel. I mean, think about it, 12 tribes, 12 disciples, Jesus is king, we serve under him, we're going to have a place of power, we're going to have a place of authority, Jesus is going to give us a nice cushy job, and that was the tension that played itself out between the disciples and Jesus for over three years. All the while, they're praying, Lord, your will be done. They had no idea that God's will included great suffering and pain, not only for Jesus, but for them as well. And here's why this is such a dangerous prayer. It's because we have in our minds of what our future looks like, what our will is, what we want it to be, how we want it to all turn out, how we want our college degree to be, how we want our career to be, how we want our family to be. We've got all that in our minds, and, and we hold on to that. But the problem is, is when we say, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're saying is, is God, if, if my will doesn't line up with yours, you know who's going to reign supreme? Not me. That's why it's dangerous. That's why it's painful. And I think that the disciples eventually get it. It takes some time, but they eventually get it. That God's will for them and for Jesus included pain and suffering. Have you ever thought about this? What if God's will for you includes pain, suffering, struggle? The fact of the matter is, is that the world we live in is a broken world. And on our best day following Jesus, we still have pains and trouble and struggle and heartache. And we're caught in this tension between the right now and the not yet. We're, we're caught in this place of where Jesus has promised a kingdom and he's promised us peace. He's promised us a land that, well, we can't even quite imagine in our mind's eye, but 
There's a big difference between where we are now and what's yet to come. I think David is a great example of what it looks like to live out that tension. Turn over to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. I think David gives us a really good example of what it looks like to live in that tension between our expectations and God's will. Between the right now, the pain that I'm in right now versus the will of God who says that at some point all things are going to be made right. We're living in that tension between those two points. And what God is calling us to in that model prayer is to surrender the rights to our own life to his. Well, I think David is a really good example of this. But to really understand what David is dealing with here in Psalm 56, let me give you a little snapshot of what's going on in the background. So the nation of Israel began to call out for a king. They wanted an earthly king just like all the other nations around them. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, you'll see where this plays out. Samuel is the prophet. He's the one that's speaking to the nation on behalf of God. And the people come to Samuel and say, Samuel, we want an earthly king. And they've already got one in mind. It's a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul certainly looks the part. When you look at Saul, the Bible says he was head and shoulders above everyone else. When you looked at Saul, you were impressed with what you saw. The only problem was is that while Saul looked really good on the outside, on the inside, he was a messed up individual. So Samuel goes to God and says to God, hey, the the, the nation wants a king. They want an earthly king. And God says, okay, I'll give them a king. By the way, Samuel, let them know that they already have a king. They don't need an earthly king. They've already got a king. I'm their king. But if they want an earthly king, we'll give them an earthly king. Matter of fact, we'll let them have the one they've chosen. You see, Israel had picked a man, but it wasn't the man that God picked. Well, anytime you make a selection that God didn't make, yeah, there's going to be pain on the backside of that, I promise you, when you're God's people. So Samuel says, okay, you can have Saul, but make sure you understand that Saul is going to make your life difficult. They were thinking that Saul could go out and ride out in the battle and fight their battles for them. And, and Samuel says, no, here's what he's going to do. He's going to, take, he's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your time. He's going to take everything. And they said, we don't care. We want Saul. Well, as you can imagine, it turns into an absolute train wreck. Saul turns out to be a broken individual who's filled with arrogance and pride and time goes on and the pain of what's happening in the nation grows and grows and grows and God says, okay, you've got your guy, now I've got mine. He tells Samuel, Samuel, you go to Jesse. And in Jesse's household is my king. And Samuel goes to Jesse's household and Jesse brings all the brothers out. The oldest comes first and Samuel says, well, certainly this has got to be the guy. This is the guy, right? And God's like, no, that's not him. And brother after brother after brother is paraded in front of Samuel. And God goes, nope, nope, not him. No, not him. They went through all the brothers. And Samuel says to Jesse, hey, you got any more kids? You got any more sons? And uh, Jesse's like, well, yeah, I've got this one guy, but he, we, we didn't even think he was important enough to even invite to the banquet. He's like 14 years old, and he's out there tending to the sheep. Samuel says, bring him in. And as soon as he brings him in, the Bible says he was nothing much to look at. I mean, he's not like this big, powerful leader. He's 14. The Bible says he was handsome, but no one have ever thought that David would be the king of one of the most powerful nations on earth. And God says, that's the guy right there. 
He's the king. At 14 years old, he set apart as king, but get this. It'll be 16 more years before David actually takes over the kingdom. 16 years of pain, 16 years of running, 16 years of scrapping for food, 16 years being on the run from a madman named Saul who's trying to murder him. And not only that, Saul has a powerful kingdom, and he's got a powerful network, and everybody is selling David out over and over again. At the very time David wrote this psalm was a time where he was having a hard time even finding food. So David is caught between the right now, I'm king, and the not yet, I'm on the run for my life. The right now who says, God has promised me to be the king of his people, yet the not yet, which means I've got who knows how much time to go before I become king. Look at Psalm 56. While his enemies are looking for him, they're trying to destroy him. Look at how David describes this. Verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. What I love about the poetry of the Psalms is just how clear we get a vision of what's happening. David says, These enemies of mine, they're trampling me. He's on the run. He has nowhere to lay his head. He's having to live in a cave. He's got some really rough people hanging around him. He says, they trample me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample me all the day long when many attack me proudly. In other words, it wasn't just that they were attacking him, but they were proud of the fact that they were attacking him. They were proud of the fact that they were, that they were putting David on the run. They were proud of the fact that David was suffering. Look at verse 5. He says, all the day long they injure my cause or they twist my words is what it actually means in the Hebrew. They twist my words. You ever had anyone twist your words? You ever have anyone ever start some gossip on you to make some things up about you? Maybe someone is very close to you just stabbed you in the back. David says, not only are they trampling me, not only are they trying to injure me, but, but they're taking my words and they're twisting them. They're lying about me. They're starting rumors about me. He says, all their thoughts against me are evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life for their crime. Will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. David gives us this picture of people lurking and trying to overtake him. So what is David going to do? Caught between this moment where he's called to be king, yet years, 16 years passes. We don't know exactly where he was in the journey. Maybe he's in his 20s. Maybe by this time, five, six, maybe 10 years have passed, and yet he's still not king, yet he's still scrapping for food. What is David going to do? One of the things that we see all through the Psalms is that even in David's pain, he worships God. And I really do believe not only in the model prayer, that we hallow his name, we honor his name, we exalt his name, that it's at that place, at that point, when we worship God, it gives us perspective on the pain that we're living in right now between the right now and the not yet. So this tension between our expectations and God's will, the tension between David being called as king yet on the run for his life from Saul, There's a gap between our will and our desire for comfort and and God's will 
that he wants for our life that often includes pain and difficulty. It includes the building of his kingdom in a broken world. And, and certainly you've got to understand that, that as kingdom builders in a broken world, we're going to feel the tension of, of doing that work in God's kingdom. Notice what David says in verse 3. He says, when I am afraid, now pause there for just a moment, when I am afraid. Some of you grew up in church, some of you did not. <clears throat> and I can remember vividly the stories in Sunday school and vacation Bible school about this powerful leader called David. And of course, that all kind of centered on that moment when David walks down into the valley of Elah and faces Goliath, right? That imagery is very fresh in our minds. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard the story. So maybe our first thought about David is not fear. Maybe our first thought about David is a guy who can face down an eight-foot giant, a guy who can lead the nations, uh, the armies of Israel into great battles and win those battles. Maybe our first thought about David is, is just how focused he was on doing the will of God, but maybe your first thought about David is not a guy who's scared to death and his knees are knocking together. You see, this is what I love about the Bible. I think this is what give the, the gives the Bible great credibility, is that if if David is this great leader, this great conqueror, this great warrior, why in the world would David include such a verse in this psalm as I am afraid? It shows the reality, the humanity of David. There are all times all of us are afraid. Even the strongest, even the most formidable, even the one with the most skills, if we're honest, would say that we're afraid. In March 2020, we, were, uh, we just started construction on this building. First of March, we just started remodeling. Leading up to the weekend of March 16th, our governor is already coming out and he's been warning us all that week of COVID and, and a potential shutdown and all that that means. We already had other states and other communities that were already shutting down. We get to Friday of that week and, and the governor seems to be kind of backing off the whole idea of shutting down. We already had the service planned for that weekend. Remember we were still in the gym and we already had the services planned and I'm in contact with all of our leaders and you know, that consists of, well, let's just move ahead and do our service, just like we'd planned. There's no reason to change anything. There's no mandates or anything. Let's move ahead. Well, less than 24 hours later, on Saturday, the governor comes and says, we're shutting down. We're going to shut everything down. So then it's like, okay, now what do we do? Do we, do we go ahead and have the services? Do we not? So we decided we're going to go ahead and have the services. We're going to go ahead and, and do what we need to do and then get into that next week and start trying to make some decisions about what it means to, to gather. Can we gather? Will it be safe to gather? Will we, will we follow the mandates of, of our governor and the medical profession? What will we do? Well, on that Sunday, for that Sunday, we made the decision. I want you to know there's a whole bunch of people got mad at me. There's a whole bunch of people got upset. On the one hand, people were saying, what are we, you're putting us all at risk. Pastor, you're making decisions. You're being, you're being um, kind of reckless, aren't you? And quite frankly, I can remember it distinctly. There, there was some 
some moments in those weeks right there in March that I was afraid. I mean, think about it. We just started a building project. Talk about bad timing there as far as a human perspective. What's the giving going to do? What's attendance going to do? Are we even going to be able to have services? What are they going to look like? Will we be able to stream? Will we be able to do any of that effectively? And will we be able to gather? When will it be? And <clears throat> that, was a, that was a time where I was afraid. A few weeks, the very next week, we shut down. <laughs> Here's the interesting thing. We shut down a week later. The people that were mad at me and are now happy with me, and the people who do and didn't want us to shut down are now mad at me. <laughs> you see, this is why we don't lead to please people. We lead to please God. We seek His will. And make no mistake about it, if a decision has to be made, I'm going to swing the bat. Now, I may hit a foul. I may, hit, I may strike. But I'm going to swing the bat. I, I think if you've been here long enough, long, long enough to know that I'm going to make a decision, we've got to move forward. I didn't do it alone. But I was afraid. David's afraid. Because he's caught between the right now circumstances the pain, the suffering, the running, the death threats, the, the rumors, Saul trying to kill him and has all of his minions trying to do the same. And, and the not yet, David, you're king. You're going to lead the people. You're going to be in charge. He's caught in that moment. I was caught in that moment between COVID-19 and a shutdown and what I know God has called this church to do. And that's to be great commission people. I've caught between the two. And I was afraid. Look at what David says. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Right there in verses 3 to 4 is a good image of, of what it means to live out your daily life walking with Jesus. On the one moment, David's scared to death. His knees are knocking. He turns his eyes back to God. He puts his trust in God. And guess what happens? The, the fear just erodes away. It just goes away. And then he says, well, what can flesh really do to me? What can Saul do to me? What can, what can his minions do to me? I'm, I'm walking in the kingdom of God, trying to do the will of the sovereign God of this universe. So what do I have to fear? Guess what I did back in March 2020? I had to push back from it all. And I had to say, God, this is your church. These are your people. You love these people so much that you gave Jesus your only son to die for them. If, you've ever, if there's ever been any doubt about God's love for his church and love for his people, just take a look at the cross. This is your people. You called me to this task. What do I have to be afraid of? Is my job here to make sure that everyone likes me? Nope. Is my job here to make sure you're comfortable and everything is perfect in your life? Nope. Is my job here to shepherd a flock of people, God's people, to do great commission work and make disciples who make disciples? Yes. Who does that depend on? It depends on God. Who where will I put my trust? In him. What can man do to me? David says, I will trust him. David steps back from his fear. David steps back from his worry. David steps back and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The God that I worship, the God that I honor, the God that I serve, he's in control. It's his will that matters, not mine. It's his purposes, not my comfort that matter. 
He's called me to this purpose. He's called me to this task. And I'm going to trust him because I've got a whole bunch of history behind me that says God is trustworthy. Verse 8. He says, all, he says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David says something here that I think is very profound in relation to what he's struggling with versus what God has called him to. That difference between where he is and where God said he will be at some point. He, he realizes that all those tears that he shed, all the, the pain and the anguish, all that he's gone through, that God is fully and completely aware of every bit of that. You see, it's, it's a really good lie that Satan tells us in the middle of our pain, in the middle of the gossip that someone started about you, in the middle of someone stabbing you in the back, in the middle of, of the, the anguish that you're going through, the lie that we're hearing in our head and in our heart is that God doesn't know, nor does he care. But isn't it interesting, as David admits that he's afraid, admits that that things aren't working out exactly the way he thought they would work out, that there's a big difference between God's calling and the comfort that he thought it would turn into. And as he worships God and as he honors God's word and as he puts his trust in God, notice this, he realizes that, that God is fully and completely aware of all that's going on. So this, the fear that is in David's heart, that has gripped his heart, begins to melt away. And as that fear melts away, he's able to see God in all of his power and his glory and the work that God is doing in his life. What would it be like for us tomorrow to realize that every tear that you've shed out of the pain and anguish that you've been through, that God has counted and saved every one of them? That's pretty intimate, isn't it? Who, who else is that close to you? I mean, there's tears that you shed that your spouse doesn't know about. There's tears that you've shed that your best friend doesn't know about. But God knows of every one of them. I was trying to think of how to, to frame this, this fear that, that David was feeling and experiencing. And I, I think you know it full well. I think you know the fear and the anguish of David because you've been through it. Notice what else David says here. He says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. Notice that he, he realizes that God has counted his tears, and out of that, and out of the worship that he has for God, he says in his own heart, he says, I, I don't know how you're going to do it, God. I don't know how it is that I'm going to become king. I don't know how it is or how much more time is going to elapse before I'm in that place that you've called me to be. But in the middle, in this space that I'm in, in this place of the unknown, I'm going to trust you. I know you're with me, and I know you're going to take care of my enemies in your time and your way. I think verse 9, this latter part of it is what really gets my heart attention. He says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. <laughs> it's one thing to say that God is with us, right? I mean, we, we say that often. Oh, God's going to be with you through this. Oh, God's going to help you through this. God, God is with you in the suffering. It's a whole nother concept altogether to say that God is for you. 
you look over in your corner, the ring of fighting and mess that you're in, and it's one thing for people to be standing over there and say they're with you. It's a whole other thing for those people standing in that corner to get in the ring with you. He's for you. If David could say that, David didn't have the full revelation that you and I have. If David could say that, certainly we can, that, that Jesus died in our place, we put our faith in him, we've been transformed, we've been regenerated, we've been given brand new life, and certainly God says, I'm with you. You know why that is? Because God is our Father. We are his children as born-again believers. We are sons and daughters of the Father. And just as much as you are with your kids, you are for your kids, right? As parents, you're not just with your kids, right? You are for your kids. Multiply that by a billion times a billion, and that's what God is in your life. Not only is he with you, but he is for you. In God, whose word I praise, in Lord, whose word I shall praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I was thinking about this fear that grips our heart, and uh, I think I've got a way to illustrate that for you. So I, can, I remember the weight and the pressure and the expectations and the sheer, well, terror of it all when we brought our first daughter home. And we, we get out of the airport, and uh, I put her in that child seat, which was way bigger than she was. And I'm strapping her in, and I can remember getting in the car to drive home. And this is the same for all three of our kids, just thinking of the sheer weight of what it means to be a parent, right? That this little person is expecting me to have answers and expecting me to do all these things. And quite frankly, I'm scared to death because I don't know that I can pull that off. I am now responsible for this little person in the back seat. Man, that's a weight, isn't it? And I, th I, think it's, I think it's more profound with that first child because, you know, you don't have a clue what you're doing. And, you know, people say, oh, read some books. Yeah, I've read your books, and I'm still scared to death, okay? And I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and I'm looking at this little thing in the back seat back there, and, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I got myself into here? Same thing with, with Jenna, same thing with Caleb. But let me tell you about real, real fear and real, real terror. That was bad. But when I had to get in the passenger seat and hand the keys across <laughs> to a 15-year-old, now I'm scared. Jenna's going through that process now of learning to drive and uh, if you see me, if you hear any loud noises over on the lakeside side of Wendy over in your neighborhood, it could be me. It could be. Uh, she's doing pretty good, though. She's, she's doing pretty well. But here's the thing. When I get in that passenger seat and I hand those keys across, she gets to determine the speed. Now, I, I do keep my hand on the emergency brake in the center of the car. I do do that. I'm having trouble giving over that control. Nonetheless, she's learning. But she gets to determine the speed. She gets to determine when we pull out to cross back over 301 to go back over to our development. She gets to decide when it's clear. And I have to sit over there and just suck it up. 
because kids don't remain in infancies, they grow up. And as a parent, I have the responsibility in spite of my fear between that right now and not yet. Right now, she's learning to drive. She's not yet become an experienced driver. I'm living in that moment right now. And there's fear involved. You know why? Because dad's not in control. Dad loves to be in control. There would be some in my household that would say, dad's a control freak. I'll admit that. But boy, how powerless is it when you hand the keys across to that 14, 15-year-old to drive that car? You see, the thing is, when we're following Jesus, <laughs> Jesus says, hand me the keys. And Jesus says, I get to determine the speed at which I fulfill my promises to you. I don't like that part. Do you like that part? I don't like that part. I want it all to be fulfilled today. I want the, the, the fruition of his kingdom today. And his kingdom is here today. I want, the, I want to be a disciple-making church who makes disciples who make disciples today. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You see, I'm driving. And I get to determine the speed. I get to determine when we pull out. I get to determine what happens today and tomorrow. And here's what your role is. Your role is to sit over there and go, I'm with you. How are you doing with that? That could be the one thing that's keeping you out of the kingdom. That could be the one thing that's preventing you from putting your faith in Jesus is the fact that he becomes Lord of your life. And you're not too on board with that. Well, how are you doing with things? How are you controlling things? How are you working things out for your own purposes? You're not, are you? The more control you take, the less control you've got. That was profound. Say that again. The more control you take, the less control you've got. So maybe you've come to the crossroads like Charlie was talking about. It's time to choose. David says God can be trusted because he's trustworthy. He's been faithful over and over again. He's kept my tears in a bottle. He's written down my pains in a book. I will praise him and I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, nothing. Look at verse 12. This is all leading somewhere. The model prayer is leading somewhere. Where is it leading? Well, if we're worshiping and hallowing and honoring and exalting God, then the very next step is, okay, if God is in control and he's worthy to be worshiped, then what's my response to that? Well, surrender. Notice where David goes. He says, I must perform my vows to you. Why must he perform them? Well, because he's no longer afraid. He's not worried about people, what people are saying. He's not worried about Saul. His trust is in God. What can man do to him? So he says, now, based on the fact that I'm no longer afraid, based on the fact that God is in control, based on the fact that, yes, I'm caught between the right now and the not yet, I'm going to trust God with all of that. And I have my work to do, oh God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. Look at this, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Look at this, you have delivered my soul, why? To walk in the light of life. Father, you are exalted, your name is to be hallowed, why? Because I'm to see that I am part of your kingdom and I have a work to do and I have a job to do and that job has very little to do with my comfort and a whole lot to do with his holiness and his purpose and his will. He says, I must perform my vows. I must not be frozen in fear and worry. 
I must look back over my life and see over and over again. David could look back over his life and see over and over again how God had delivered him and blessed him and protected him. So what are we to do with this? Well, I think between the model prayer and Psalm 56 and David's life, the first thing that I see that we, we've got to realize, I think, I think there's power in realizing this, is first of all, fear and worry are the opposites of trusting in God. The opposites. I need reminding of this. Worry is about me trying to wrestle those keys out of God's hand back over into my control. And worry is me trying to come up with a plan on how I'm going to pull that off. And worry is about me coming up with all the contingencies on if it goes this way or if it goes this way or if it goes this way. When you're doing that, who's actually in control? It's you. But, but then again, the crazy thing is, is you're not. Worry makes you feel as though you are. Worry makes you feel as though you're doing something. And what you're trying to do is, God, give me those keys back just for a moment. I want to drive from over here. And when I feel good about it, I'll let you have the control back. When I feel like the time is right, I'll let you control it. You see, fear and worry, not the, not the fear of God. Make sure we're clear here. We are to fear and reverence God. But what we're talking about is the fear of people, the fear of opinions, the fear of what people think about us, the fear of doing what God has called us to do, the fear of bringing Jesus' name up, the fear of leading our family, the fear of doing our job with excellence. That's the fear I'm talking about. And that fear and that worry is the exact opposite of what it means to trust God of what David is talking about right here. And listen, David is wrestling with the same thing you are. Listen, as long as you are in control, when we pray your will be done is nothing more than lip service. Because deep down, we really don't want that. We really don't want God to have his will in our life because we're afraid of what he might do we're afraid of what he might say. We're afraid of where he might lead us. We're afraid of what he might do in our marriages. We're afraid of what he might do in our job. So if we're in control, if we've got the keys, if we're sitting in the driver's seat, then yeah, we can pretty well expect that fear and worry are going to increase and we must realize that's the exact opposite of following God in faith and trust. Secondly, I think one of the answers to fear and worry, I think one of the critical answers to that that gives us a pathway out of fear and worry is worship of God, honoring him, praising him, exalting him, seeing how faithful he's been in times past, looking at all the prayers that he's answered, looking at all the times he's provided to your family. Look, if God's been faithful back there and God's been faithful back here in David's life, if God's been faithful to Joseph and David and Daniel, if God's been faithful to the 11 disciples, if God has been faithful to Paul and John and Peter, guess what? He doesn't change. His faithfulness is never less than. He doesn't love you less today than he loved you yesterday. He loves you the same all the time, completely and perfectly. Answering the fear, the best way to do that is with worship. That's what we see David doing. I trust you and I worship you. I hallow your name. I worship you in word. I worship, your, I worship the words. I look at the words that you've said and your consistency, oh God, and I worship and honor you. And then finally, you need to surrender to the very next thing God is asking you to do. Right now, right today. Quit hovering between two. 
Quit sitting on the fence. What has an awful place to be? Should I? Should I not? Can I trust him? Can I not? Be obedient to the very next thing that God is asking you to do. For some of you, that means salvation. For some of you watching today, that means salvation. Putting your faith in Jesus, giving up control once and for all, giving up control. For some of you, it may mean praying with your spouse. For some of you, maybe it means getting up 15 minutes earlier each day just to spend some time in God's Word. Maybe it means that you finally, finally follow through with believer's baptism next Sunday. You put your faith in Jesus, but you've been scared to death of baptism. You don't like being in front of crowds. I get it. Especially wet in front of crowds. I mean, come on. It's a pretty big ask, isn't it? Maybe that's your next step. Surrender to the very next thing God is asking you to do today, right now. Whether it's a small thing or a big thing, surrender to that today. Give you an illustration on that, we'll close. Inside each one of you, I want you to imagine this inside of your heart and life. Inside of your heart is a big old boardroom, right? It's got that big executive table, all those chairs sitting around. There's a whiteboard on one end. And you, you have several, well, game players at the table. You've got your private self, the private you. He, he's sitting there at the table. You've got your public self. He's sitting at the table. You've got your religious self. He's sitting at the table. You've got, well, you've got your uh, social self. You've got your recreational self. You've got all these yous sitting at the table. You've got your sexual self sitting at the table. And here's what happens. A decision needs to be made. Something needs, we need to move in a direction. And an argument breaks out in your heart. You're fighting with yourself about what should I do, what should I not do. Oh, i got to look right in front of people. Oh, i got to look a certain way in front of the church people. So I, the religious self kind of takes the forefront. Well, it's Sunday morning. we got to put on our mask. we got to look a certain way. So he kind of overrules until we get to Monday morning. Then Monday morning we got the, the public view because we don't want everybody to know we're crazy about Jesus. So then he kind of overrules. And there's this constant tension on the inside of you. Who am I going to listen to today? Now, for some people, when they put their faith in Jesus, they just put Jesus at the board table. They just, they just put him there in a chair. And he's just one more voice among many voices, right? And there are days he kind of wins out and maybe we open the Bible. And then there's other days we don't really think about him for maybe weeks on end. So all this turmoil on the inside of you, worry, fear, struggle, is because of all that indecision that's in there. But here's what really happened when you put your faith in Jesus. Or if you put your faith in Jesus today, here's, here's what that looks like. When Jesus comes in, we tell him, and we put our faith in Jesus. Sometimes we have to tell him this every day. Lord, fire everyone in the boardroom. Fire them all. Because none of them have sovereignty over my life. None of them saved me. None of them changed me. Lord, you fire them all, kick them all out, and there's only one voice I'm going to listen to. And it's yours because his voice is the only one worth listening to. So maybe today, in response, we just need to fire some of those voices. The doubt, the worry, our public image. Maybe we just need to fire all those other voices that are circling in our heart and our mind, and there's only one in the boardroom. 
because there's only one that matters. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in just a little while, in just a few minutes after we sing this last song, we have a couple with us, Father, that has heard that call. The call to go to another place of service and another place of ministry. Father, we want to take the moment this morning and, and pray over them before we close out. But before we get there, Father, there are others here they're sensing the call, not necessarily to ministry, but, Father, to faithfulness, to obedience. And, Father, we need, we need to fire some voices in our heart and in our mind. Jesus, you are Lord. And between my right now and that not yet, Father, my heart's desire is going to be to seek out comfort. But Father, I know that there's more struggle and pain ahead. So Father, I trust you with each of those moments, knowing that you are with me, not only with me, but you are for me. Father, there are people in this room and there are people watching online this morning that need to put their trust in you. To stop the seesaw of worrying and fear, going back and forth, struggling between two trying to wrestle control out of your hands when in fact, Father, we have no control whatsoever. So Father, would that be for salvation? Would that be for surrendering to that next thing you've clearly called us to do? Have your will and your way in these moments this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist. 